Hello, I am Chipo Chipoziwa, and welcome to Performing No Performance. This is a podcast in which I ask performance artists why and how they create the work that they create and what does studio time mean and look like to them. I am also joined by Live's Brady Seal Marks, who sometimes joins in on the conversation. In this episode, I speak with Mexican performance artist Emilio Rojas. Emilio's practice concerns itself with border politics and investigating decolonization. I am honored to have him as my third guest. I wanted to start off with discussing your performance titled Heridas Abiertas. Yes, yes, which originated in 2014 and is still ongoing. In this performance, you work with tattoo artist Victor Nitu to engrave the U.S. and Mexican border on your back, resulting in a 22-inch scar. Can you tell us why you chose to take such a literal and permanent approach with this piece? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's not permanent because it's the well it is permanent in a kind of a scarification kind of way but it's not permanent in like i don't it's an inkless tattoo uh victor nieto was the last person to do it but there's been i've been doing it actually since i was in vancouver um the first one i did in 2014 in houston texas for this festival and i had been Actually, Guadalupe, who was your teacher, um, Guadalupe Martinez, gave me a copy of Borderlands, La Frontera. And the opening line of it says, the U.S.-Mexican border is an open wound where the third world grates against the first and bleeds. Um, And I just kind of that stuck uh, with me, the idea of the border as this wound that is like constantly bleeding and we're constantly losing people. Um, and the sort of violence, but also the sort of resistance and survival and communities that exist within this kind of liminal space that Ansaldua describes as like a third country, like this border culture where there's like a different language and Spanglish is spoken. And she goes through the entire book kind of explaining why this wound um, is open. Um, and I was working in... I've been working with her archives in UT Austin in Texas for about 10 years now, or yeah, like nine years. I keep saying, I kept saying six years for a long time. And then I'm like, oh, I think time has passed. Uh, so I, uh, so I applied for this festival and I wanted to do, Ansaldo was from Texas. So I wanted to do that piece there. Um, and I was still living in Vancouver, but my family. My mother grew up in uh, Tijuana and I grew up going and crossing the border. Um, And I have family on both sides of the border. So I think about um, some of who can cross, some who can't back. Um, So I was thinking this of the line um, and the way it's inscribed. And actually, when I was in at the archive, I had a dream of Gloria and Saldua coming in uh, into my room with a knife. And I thought she was going to kill me, but I like a kind of rebirth or some like some, she's such an important figure for me. Like there was, um, but she turned me around and then she carved the border on my back. And then 
Um, I tried to um, get a surgeon to do that. Uh, But of course, no one would want to do that. It's like unethical to like just open someone for no reason. Uh, But I had been working with tattoos before in my undergrad at Emily Carr. um, And um, I worked with David Kang and... um, and to artists here in Mexico and, the, and in Canada in Vancouver. And then he came to Mexico with me and we worked with another tutorist. So I've been working with tutorists uh, for different pieces. So I realized that um, it was actually, um, which is this text here, the aesthetic wound. Uh, there's a poem by Guillermo Gomez Peña that he talks about about tattoos as aesthetic wounds. And then I thought, oh, aesthetic wounds, open wounds. What if the tattoo didn't have ink? So a tattoo is just a wound with ink that just keeps the, keeps it permanent in your, in your skin. So if it's a, if it doesn't have ink, then it's, just a wound and then it's just open for that moment where the tattoo artist is like kind of opening your skin uh usually to put in ink so they like recharge and put it back um so then i thought that was the next best 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 thing i think i'm grateful that i didn't do the the like knife opening my back Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's also this process of healing the tattoo heals the scar is like left there like a trace um and i usually work with tattoo artists who have crossed the border themselves Mm. Uh, there's this like inscription um like victor nieto was the last person uh and also like they're they want to share their stories too like it's um i tell them the project uh victor was brought as a child um but her mother his mother at the time of the performance was facing deportation so when he was inscribing it was like and the mother was there and it was like a very kind of intense emotional experience for both of us but I felt it more than with any other tattoo I think it was very emotional for him to carve it mm-hmm. and then he said there was this really amazing catharsis because he'd never actually had the conversation of what it felt to like cross the border as a child um with um his family like it was just like that thing happened and we don't talk about it and that opened up a lot of conversations with his family and then actually the week after the charges on the mother were completely dropped and he called me and he's like we did it and I was like we did what it's like the tattoo work like we like because it was for him it was a ritual uh as well as well as for me but for him it was this kind of it was like, you know, we like, we invoked the spirits and like they protected my mom and it was this really beautiful. Uh, and I don't know if that's truly what happened, but he really believed that that's what happened. And I feel like my perspective is different, but also the work is about amplifying the voices uh, of my community, uh, like Mexican and Latino community, Latinx community here in the US and their experience of crossing, which is very different and varied. And there's very, uh, each crossing is a very different experience. Um, 
And yeah, it is very intense. Like I, I have the wound for about a week uh, in my back, kind of very fresh. And I feel it and I can sort of feel it, um, can feel sort of the territory in my skin. And um, it, it has changed because I do it every year since 2014. So it's been 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So it's been nine times that I've done it uh, in different locations, in different exhibitions. Rather, it's like performed close to the border or in exhibitions that relate to borders uh, that have that sort of theme. Um, and it's interesting enough, every single time that we do it, and it's probably usually programmed. It's like it's a performance that takes a lot of planning to program because it's been censored a couple of times. Where like, uh, like at Lafayette, someone found out. Like someone from the board of the school found out, and they were like, uh, "We can't do this in the school." So we ended up actually doing it on the back of the tattoo shop, which was like a house, uh, and in in the, in the yard. And we like brought curtains from the theater and um, department and. Just made it look really nice, but it was on the on like a, someone's po like it was on the tattoo shop's like back porch, mm -hmm. and there was actually a game, a football game being played like by the school that was like close by, and you can hear like the roaring and the national anthem, and it was just so mm -hmm. like it just made it so much more bizarre because it was this really intense like expression of American identity uh, and like the performance started and then the national anthem started and it was just like, whoa. Um, I was thinking about that one tattoo artist specifically who thought as performance as ritual, ritual as performance and how in a way that saved his own mother. And I was just thinking about Guadalupe again and something that she said to me that has just stuck throughout my practice and it's that the body is not neutral and I think that you've kind of taken that and like amplified it in such a way where yes our bodies are already not neutral given our own personal histories our race our gender coming into play but now you've amplified that and put an international border a border that bleeds onto mm. your body I had an image um and then I've had variations of thought of it, like the, this piece is, I mean, I've sort of been thinking, uh, Tanya Bruguero said something to me similar to what Guadalupe said to you, mm -hmm. but are you, wait, just finish the question maybe. And then. No, 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 that was, no, that was. Okay. Yeah. Um, that as people of color, as queer people, uh as like indigenous people like my father is indigenous i grew i didn't grow up with him so my knowledge of my own indigeneity is kind of lost in that kind of abandonment as well so i've been trying kind of think it's like a lifelong journey to like reconnecting with that root with those roots knowing that you have them inside of you and that's why i'm so um um like my first performance mentor was Rebecca uh, Belmore, like looking at her work, documenting her work, like that really taught me so much. Um, and I just, um, Tanya Bruguera, who's another one of my mentors, 
she told me like, you are never going to be read. You're all, you're already going to be read as not neutral. Like you're already going to be seen as othered. So you might as well use that to your advantage instead of like deny it. Mm -hmm. Like you're already going to be seen as this like queer brown immigrant or like however layers like they see through and present to what you have like you're not just like the normative hetero cisgender like white body mm -hmm. so it's like you're already being read differently so instead of avoiding that you like should lean on it um which I think I've done um in my work but also um there is um in terms of my personal history is very different from others other people's history so i always try to speak from my perspective in a way and also working i that's one of the reasons i love working with archives because a lot of this mentors i mean i would have loved to be um ansel dua was born the um in 1942 so there's a big chance that I could have met her if she hadn't died in 2004 um, of like com complications of diabetes, which is like completely controllable if you have the right healthcare and and um, um, support. Um, but so working for me with archives is a possibility to like open into a window into the work of people that um, were denied to live uh and i often think of mourning i mean i work with a lot of aids archives and um Lauren saldu and bay rostin like people um that i didn't have the chance to meet but there's like a way of going into their practices into the words into their worlds um through the archive and then kind of the a lot of these pieces with the border have come from just like I feel of it as like a con collaboration or continuation of Ansel Dua's work. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these pieces are actually, it has a title and then it has a parenthesis and it says to Gloria or a Gloria, which means to Gloria, like dedicated to her. Um, and I've recently been responding to the work of um, photographer um, Laura Aguilar, who also just recently died of complications of diabetes uh, and she was very young. Um, so there's like, um, I often think of like Coco Fusco's essay, like the bodies that were not ours. The bo I can't remember the, let's find the right title. The bodies that are not ours, the bodies that were not ours. Yeah. Um, in the way that a lot of our bodies are often like exploited uh, or render like they didn't belong to us. They sort of belong to capitalism. Um, they they belong to colonialism and imperialism, and they were seen as this material to extract and to exploit. Uh, so how do you reclaim your body that is already not seen as neutral, especially when you're not where you were born? Mm -hmm. And I just want to talk about your piece. So your piece, Questions to the Border, which was done in 2019. How have lost count of how many people have passed through you? 
or tried or died trying? Which side of the bed do you sleep in? The Mexican side or the American side? Do you call the Canadian US border and bitch about, about the US politics? Are you a highly functioning introvert or a sensory extrovert? Do you speak to your children in English, Espanol, Spanglish? Did your mother ever ever warn you about talking to strangers? Mm -hmm. How do you sleep at night with the horrors you have seen? When, when you were established, was it against your own will? Which is your favorite and least favorite part of yourself? Mm. Who would you choose to write your autobiography? Do you go to group therapy with other boarders? What is your favorite bird that flies above you? Have you ever been separated from your family? Do you hold their hands as they die in your deserts? Do you have an Instagram? How many followers? What is your shoe size? Do you like wearing heels? When was the last time you cried? You laughed. Do you hear the children crying at night in cages? Do you have blood stains in the clothes you wear? Do you count monarch butterflies to fall asleep? Have you ever prepared for the apocalypse? What skeletons do you keep in your closet? Have you ever held the hand of a dying lover? So yeah, I think about the tension, which is already present, the, the imbalance, how the traveler is at the mercy of another human being yeah this i mean these questions actually are not from me they um when i did the piece naturalized border um i mean i've been trying to think about the way the border has been mediatized by um like how it is portrayed in the media um and how there's a there's a number of pieces that I've sort of developed as like what I call border pedagogy coming out of again until do us work. Um, so when I planted the border in Advard with it was for this biennial on borders called where no wall remains. Um, and I developed a series of exercises so that the students and the people that participated in the workshops that I organized, there was about 600 people that came through uh, in like groups of 40, uh, 30 or 40. Um, and this was one of the exercises. So it was like, if you can sit, if the border was a person and you can sit with the border and have dinner, what questions would you ask them? Oh. So each student, each student wrote, um, about i would say about 20 or 30 questions i gave them like time to like reflect and also think like what kind of person is the border is it a woman is it a man is it old is it a trans person is it like uh, a child like how do you see the border and also to think about in geological time the u.s mexican border uh was established in uh, 1848 so it's quite a quite a short period of time in terms of the, the history of the, like the geological history of the earth. 
mm-hmm. but it's like affects people so severely. Uh, so then they sort of imagine what the border would look like as a person, and then they would ask them questions. So these questions come from, uh, you know, from 17 year olds to like 50 year olds. And they like, I, that selection, I have hundreds, I have like maybe thousands of these questions from the groups that came mm-hmm. through um, that I still need to transcribe and made into like a form of like open book, open like an accordion book that has yeah. all the questions laid down. Uh, but these are some of the ones that I kind of made me reflect the most, like what side of the bed you sleep in, you know, if like there was a bed. I mean, it also like was very performative, like to imagine like having a bed right at the edge, like cut in half and like people sleeping on both sides. Uh, often mm-hmm. families are like separated and cannot cross or see their family members because they don't have papers to go back. Uh, or they're, by, or they're uh, fleeing very violent uh situations so um these questions that you read are sort of like a little glimpse into this exercise which Mm -hmm. then we use to um to think about voice and how you ask questions and if you scream a question or if you whisper a question and then while the border was planted um the corn um, when the husk is attached to the corn, it's called an ear. Mm-hmm. So it's like the ear of a corn. Uh, so it was, if it's an ear, then it should be able to listen, right? In like the metaphorical sense. So then the students would go back to the installation and read and like whisper the questions into the ears of the corn and like asking the questions back to the border in the sense that it was planted in the shape of the border. So, um, there was this sort of idea that maybe the border was listening and the land is listening. You spoke with public parking in 2020, in August 2021, and you said performance art is not an easy medium to have a life built around. Out of all the artistic me- mediums, it is the most empirical. And I think about this discipline over the past 10 years, and I constantly get told that I'm doing too much, but I think I'm not doing enough. And I really resonated with this quote because I find myself in a similar struggle. I don't know when I'm doing too much and when I'm doing too little. And it always, and the answer always changes regardless of who's giving me the feedback and honestly myself on the given, like any given time and day. And I just wanted to ask you a question, which is, do you think that balance and performance art can coexist? balance and performance art can coexist balance in like your life or balance in a piece balance in a piece in a piece i think so i mean uh now i try to synthesize a lot more than i did perhaps when i was like coming out of undergrad where like often people would see my work and they're like there's 10 pieces in there you know it's like mm-hmm. there's a lot I was trying to do, it wasn't that I was trying to do a lot, but it was, uh, now I'm like more focused, I I would say, and more, um, but I often discover pieces inside of pieces. Like um, I did a performance at the Judson Memorial Church and 
I was carrying, I mean, there was dancers and there was migrant dancers moving through the patterns of the emerald ash borer that I, of this palette. I also like moved also to make like objects that people perform with and sculpture and uh, it's a different practice. Um, but I was carrying this roots, this root system from the tree that I had made the pallets from. So the, the top of the pallets, there was the patterns of the larva of the, of the beetle and the dancers were on top of the pallets moving their bodies based on the patterns of the beetles and they were all migrant dancers and they moved them across the whole space and it lasted for eight hours and then i came out with two pieces out of it like um because i i started like the the roots had been kind of uh um wet and under the the tree was caught so the the roots were left inside of in so they were very so i started like uh kind of disintegrating them with my hands and then i thought oh what would it be to have like a huge it wasn't that big it was like maybe this big but what if it was like a huge root system and all that i do is like turn this roots into dust and what does it mean to turn like your roots into dust to kind of redefine yourself and where yeah. you're good at and then give this dust of roots to people. And I haven't done that piece yet, but I I will. Like, you know, the next commission where I like I'm <laughs> next to the gallery and this tree just fell in this future, and I'm just like haul it into the gallery and like, you know, start like just with different things to make it into dust. And then there was another part, there was an axe. And then at some point I'm holding the thing and I'm asking one of the other performers to just axe the tree the roots while I'm holding it mm -hmm. I was like oh that was such a powerful image like I want to do that with a root system where I can like carve the part of so that I can be part of the like I can carve like kind of a negative space of my body into the tree uh -huh. and, you know and have this like white like cis uh yeah and like, like the kind of like mountaineer like just axing this tree yeah uh because it was weird to have this like brown body enacting such violence into another brown body which happens as well but it was like um so then it's like i got the image and then i stopped and i was like this is a different piece mm. let's, let's focus on the piece that i'm doing right now which was like living this at the end it just ended up being like through the eight hours i left the whole place was covered in in like roots and dust uh, of the roots and um it became lighter and lighter so what um um so there was like a lot of metaphors in there um but i think balance i think for me like the balance in work also comes from like the balance in your life and having some stability um like being able to teach at um, like right now I'm at Cornell, like an Ivy League school, which is offering me a lot of like stability mm -hmm. uh, and balance in my life. Uh, like I don't have to worry about where I'm gonna, I mean, there's been times in my life where I was like, I don't know, like living paycheck to paycheck, yeah. performing every two weeks and just like not having money to buy materials for things or equipment. Mm -hmm and uh, you know having to dumpster dive like i've had that like moments of like not and then i think the work suffers because it's like 
um, if you're not balanced yourself, then the work is going to be unbalanced in a way. Like it's a reflection because you're working with your body and your experience. Yeah. Um, so the, the work I think has become, it also, it also could real, can, can lead to really, uh, chaotic and, and radical and amazing work too. But yeah. I, I'm trying to step away of this, like, um stereotype of like the starving artist or like the kind of suffering that you can only create work out of suffering yes uh, and just trying to move towards a much balanced uh studio practice which means a more much balanced like um life and spiritual practice and also just like performing um but um you know it's a, it's always a struggle but i think now that at least the financial part is not in my head all the time mm-hmm. it releases a lot of like mental real estate i call it um to be thinking about the work differently and also like you know if i need to buy a 400 dollar piece of equipment i can just buy it Mm-hmm. I need to buy some materials, like some fabric or whatever, um, or an axe. I can just buy it. And before I had to like, which was also nice, like ask from friends and stuff and like work. My The reason why I started working with pallets originally, now I'm, I made them, but uh, with my collaborator. Um, but I, the reason I started working with pallets is because I had no money to buy materials and pallets in at Granville Island when Emily Carr was in Granville Island they were just like in the alleys and on the back of the far of the market and so it was a material that was being discarded that I can just like carry to the school and make work with it Mm -hmm. Uh, but I didn't need to spend any money and it was quite you know it was a physical thing um, but now I work with pallets because I love working with pallets. Um, but it's something that you can also find everywhere in the world mm-hmm. uh, because they kind of carry the weight of this kind of global economy that we exist in and capitalism. Mm-hmm. But they're often discarded as soon as they they often break and stuff like as soon as they're not useful, they're never repaired. They are often just thrown discarded. out, yeah. discarded, which for me is kind of the the pallet is kind of a metaphor for the immigrant who is like carrying the burden and the labor mm-hmm. and also moving through borders sometimes like um in um precarious situations and then as soon as they're not useful they're like discarded right or they're like um and then uh they're also quite a precarious thing to put into the gallery because i've i've filled entire floors of the gallery with uh pallets and then people have to walk really carefully because they're like there's holes in between and then it's like and then there's like no we need to leave an option for people to walk that don't wanna you can't just fill the entire gallery with pallets like it has to be like there has to be a space at least for a wheelchair and i was like okay a space for a wheelchair sounds sounds a good idea but like a space for people to feel safe like i don't feel safe like mm-hmm. anywhere so why do why should people feel like why should like uh people should feel safe uh when the experience of so many 
like uh, queer um, and trans and people of color is not never about safety. Like that's why I don't like the idea of like a safe space because I don't think a safe space exists. I think as my goal in life is to create safer spaces, you know, both pedagogical and in community and in the art world. But I think we're always, we can create safer spaces, but like this idea of like, oh, we're in a safe space. I'm like, no, you know, that person, if I say something might retaliate uh, outside of this safe space, right? So it's not really fully safe. And I believe that is that for this episode. I would just like to say a big thank you to my guests. And I would also like to say thank you to both Live BNL and the city of Vancouver for funding this project. Thank you.